Thank you, Wing, for the introduction and also for the invitation to be with you here today. Um, and thanks, everybody, for coming to the talk. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be back. Um, I was at uh, Nuffield College for the uh, Harvard-Oxford-Stockholm Graduate Student Conference in uh, spring of 2007. So um, it's nice to be back and see the Thames again. Um, my talk today is on regional integration and welfare state convergence in Europe. Uh, I want to begin by acknowledging my collaborator, uh, who's uh, Juana Dan. She's a PhD student in the Department of Sociology at Harvard, and we've been um, working on this and, and trying to um, uh, push this together into a paper. Uh, so I'm excited to tell you about this work in progress. Um, the paper addresses uh, what I like to think of as the, the great convergence debate within political sociology. Um, going back to some of the classics of welfare state scholarship from, uh, from Walensky uh, in the 1960s, there's been a big debate over whether uh, uh, advanced capitalist welfare states are becoming more or less similar over time. Uh, and there are relatively good uh, theoretical arguments on all sides. Um, Starting with the argument for convergence, uh, starting with the argument that we should see welfare states becoming more similar, um, a big one is that advanced capitalist countries are converging economically. I mean, you think of the Convergence Club research um, from macroeconomics, for instance. And the argument here is that if advanced industrial countries are becoming more similar in the amount of economic resources they can devote to social policy, this should drive them to become more similar in the amount that they spend on social programs. It should cause them to become more similar in the designs of social programs. Um, and so it's, a, it's an economic argument, right? Um, the second argument that's a bit different is that globalization brings about convergence of welfare states. Um, and here there are two sub-arguments. One is an argument about politics. One is an argument about economics. The politics argument is that as states become embedded in international networks, they become increasingly exposed to similar scripts about what appropriate social policy is. And so as, uh, as states globalize, as they become more enmeshed in international political networks through international organizations, um, they should start being exposed to many of the same ideas and they should start doing things um, in the policy domain that are increasingly alike their peers, right? Um, here I'm thinking of the, uh, of the world polity institutionalist argument, right? That's an argument for political globalization driving um, political convergence, okay? Uh, but there's also an economic argument to be made. Um, the economic argument is slightly different and argues that basically at low levels of economic globalization, you'll see political pressure for compensatory social policy, right? Um, so if, as you open up the labor market to international competition, people experience vulnerability, precarity, uncertainty, uh, and increasingly push for, uh, for instance, more generous unemployment insurance benefits, more active labor market policy, um, things of this sort. To, combine, to, to get to convergence, you have to combine that argument, that compensatory globalization thesis, with the thesis that says at high levels of globalization, you actually get pressures to cut back on social policy expenditures, right? Um, the idea that uh, at very high levels of, of globalization of the economy, uh, corporations are free to go wherever they want. Um, this puts a lot of pressure, a lot of downward pressure on um, government expenditures, right, that should then play out in the domain of social 
social welfare policy. So if you pull both of those economic globalization arguments together, this implies that over time, welfare states should become more similar as economies globalize. Okay? Um, there are good reasons to be skeptical, though. Um, one of the arguments that specifically addresses the political globalization thesis is that international organizations, um, things like the European Union, um, things like the United Nations, things like the World Trade Organization, um, uh, things like the International Monetary Fund, uh, are essentially epiphenomenal of national politics and national rational interests. Um, probably the most uh, prominent proponent of, of this thesis uh, is Andy Moravchik, a political scientist uh, working at Princeton, um, who has developed the liberal intergovernmentalist approach to organizations like the European Union. And so the, the connection to welfare state convergence is that uh, international organizations should not have an independent influence on welfare states because international organizations themselves are functions of national politics. So this is an argument for uh, national politics driving continuing welfare state diversity, right? Welfare states should be no, under no particular pressure from international organizations since those organizations themselves are epiphenomenal, right? Um, there's also the argument in uh, historical institutionalism that welfare states are highly path-dependent institutions. For instance, think of the work of the Varieties of Capitalism School, right, Hall and Soskis. So the argument here is that you may actually see uh, some development of similarity within the set of liberal, liberal market economies. You may see some development of similarity within the coordinated market economies, but you should not anticipate convergence across those two types, right, given that you have very different um, institutions working in those different regimes, um, and that creates path-dependent processes for the durability of um, welfare state institutions. Uh, Paul Pearson's work would also be along these lines, right? Uh, the, the classic work in the 1990s questioning um, the retrenchment thesis uh, by showing that welfare state institutions were highly durable even in a, a a political period of strong retrenchment pressure. Um, so the Thatcher administration in the UK, uh, the Reagan administration in the US, um, these seem to have had very little impact on you know, the fundamental institutions of the welfare state, right? Um, Pluper and Schneider, uh, in, a, in a Journal of European Public Policy article in 2009, um, concluded uh, on, a basis of, um, on, the, on the basis of a review of the empirical evidence that despite more than a decade of convergence research driven by these theories and other theories, um, results remain contradictory and inconclusive. Um, so this is an ongoing debate within the, the political sociology literature. Um, my argument is that we've basically been looking for convergence in all the wrong places. Um, I think we've been a little bit seduced by strong versions of the globalization thesis that are simply wrong. Um, and I think the key distinction that's been lost um, in a lot of political sociology is the, is the distinction between regional integration and globalization. And I'm going to elaborate a little bit uh, on what I mean by this distinction in a minute. 
Um, one of the striking things about regional integration as a form of international embeddedness, if you think about globalization as a particular kind of network formation and regional integration as a different kind of network formation, is that um, regional integration is deepest in Europe uh, by far, although it is exhibited in other parts of the world. Okay? Um, bottom line of my argument today is that European integration brings about welfare state convergence. That's the takeaway message. Um, so let me talk a little bit about what I'm, what I'm getting at with this uh, distinction between globalization and regional integration. So this draws on a paper um, that, that was published last year in the American Journal of Sociology. And the idea of this paper was to uh, look at the networks of international organizations and states, uh, which are really theorized as the backbone of political globalization, right? This network is political globalization, according to uh, world polity scholars, um, scholars of international relations, right? So the idea of this paper was, well, uh, what does this network actually look like? How, how can we describe um, the structure of the, of the so-called world polity? Uh, what I'm showing you here is a network map where the ties on here, I mean, you can barely see them because there are so many, um, the ties are between um, capital cities, right? And on this map, a tie exists, a tie is shown um, if two states have at least one common, uh, commonly held membership in one international organization, right? Um, so you can get a map like this from one organization that has global scope, right? This is basically the UN map. I mean, every, almost all states around the world are tied to each other through at least that one um, international organization, right? So this looks like a really flat global network. Everybody is tied to everybody. It's a very dense network. Um, you can see it uh, quite clearly, right? If, on the other hand, you include information about the strength of ties through international organizations. So if you allow the network ties to be valued based on how many international organization memberships, uh, dyads of states share in common, you get a map that looks like this. Um, this is a much more regionalized map. Um, you see, you know, big black spot over Europe, lots of regional integration in Europe, um, some in South America and a little bit in West Africa, driven mostly by the efforts of the economic community of West African states. Um, so this is what the picture looks like if you look at the density of ties through uh, the number of international organizations that connect states together. So this would be a case of regionalization. Um, this is just a network map, though. Let me give you some more formal um, evidence of this. So here I plot uh, two trends. The top line is the correlation between an ideal model network where states are only allowed to be connected to each other if they're in the same region um, and the observed network, right, which is this. Um, so that's the correlation between the observed valued network and the model network of regional integration, right? The bottom line is the same correlation, but on the network that's binary instead of valued, right? So the bottom line is the correlation between this ideal model network where only regions are tied, only regions are tied together and um, this observed network, right? And I plot how those correlations change over time. 
And you can see that um, you know, the correlation between this model regional network and the binary network is very low and has been only declining over time, right? So that's our um, one big happy flat world uh, Tom Friedman is right story, right? This is the hyperglobalization thesis on the bottom line. Um, the top line suggests that maybe something richer is going on. Um, the top line demonstrates that if we take into account how many international organizations dyads of states belong to, the correlation between that and a regional network is increasing um, since the 1940s, right? Um, and you can see that huge drop in the correlation between 1940 and 1950, that's the establishment of the UN system, right? I mean, the establishment of the UN system ripples through the network, and then what happens after the establishment of the UN system is the increasing predominance of exclusive regional organizations. Okay, um, so that's what I'm talking about with this distinction between globalization and regional integration. Um, so, thinking about this regional integration and theoretical processes of institutions together, um, theoretically, I'm arguing that uh, institutional processes should be highly regionalized. Um, and let me give you some examples in each of the three classic domains of, of new institutionalism. So the, the classic mechanisms for um, isomorphism within new institutionalism are coercive, uh, mimetic, and normative processes. Um, in the coercive isomorphism domain, uh, there are several examples that apply to the European case. Um, the European Court of Justice, for instance, um, enforces legal obligations um, on EU member states. Um, Article 170 which is now 234, um, actually integrates regional and national law. Uh, when a state sends cases forward, the ECJ then writes regional law into national law on the basis of the preliminary reference procedure. Um, and since the 1960s and 70s, the ECJ has established the doctrines of supremacy and direct effect, um, which basically state that, um, uh, well, the doctrine of direct effect states that uh, rules that exist at the European level take direct effect in nation states. The doctrine of supremacy states that if there's a conflict between EU law and national law, EU law supersedes. Right. So I think um, this, this uh, coercive isomorphism process is something that's happening at the regional level. Uh, the infrastructure for it is in place. Mimetic isomorphism, I think, also matters um, for this process. Some examples here uh, would be the OMC, um, the internal market scoreboards that have been published since the 1990s when the European Union really ramped up the efforts toward economic integration. Um, scoreboards were published that indicated how much progress different EU member states had made toward integrating the national markets. Um, and this was not coercive, right? This was just uh, a, a, a mechanism like the OMC whereby national policymakers in EU member states uh, could learn from each other, right, in a, in a process of kind of mutual learning. Um, th interestingly, the mutual information system on social protection has been published by the European Commission since 1960. Um, and this is a, a classic uh, mimetic mechanism for isomorphism. Uh, the whole point of these uh, MISOCH volumes is to show what the different policy arrangements look like in different EU member states, what the directions of change are, and what policymakers in each member state might learn from the other member states, right? It's a, it's a, it's a comparative tool for learning. Um, 
The third mechanism of, of institutionalism uh, is normative isomorphism. Um, here the examples I would reference would be the formation of European fields uh, that Neil Flickstein has discussed in his recent book. Um, these are uh, several kinds of organizations that are being developed at the European level that form a European field in different, uh, in different domains, and particularly professional scientific trade organizations. There's been, a, there's been an explosion um, in these kinds of organizations that exist at the European level to coordinate um, uh, to coordinate the formation of professions at the European level, to coordinate trade interests at the European level, um, to coordinate discourse at the European level. Right? Um, I think the the Bologna process for higher ed is a really interesting case here because um, the, the Bologna process is outside the European Union formally, um, but it's a very interesting case of uh, normative isomorphism uh, because because it's, uh, it's not driven by the European Union per se. Um, it's something that exists outside the European level, but it does have a policy influence through the formation of uh, a European field um, surrounding higher education policy. Right. Um, so I put that on there just to uh, make the point that regional integration isn't about just the European Union uh, in Europe. It goes a lot beyond that. Um, now, so that's the, that's the argument for institutionalist processes of convergence. Um, there are also uh, reasons to believe, even within the framework of institutional theory, that we might not see convergence within the European Union. Okay? Um, a couple of those reasons are uh, the idea of contradictory policy scripts. Right, um, policy scripts within Europe are um, are contradictory and fragmented, and so this raises the question, the empirical question, of which policy scripts are actually adopted um, in a in a given regional field. Um, the second uh, is the idea that states uh, routinely uh, exhibit decoupling in the actions and the policies they implement. And the decoupling is between um, the EU requirements and what's actually done on the ground, right? Um, we can think of several um, prominent cases of EU member states, um, you know, uh, basically flouting uh, European Union law. Uh, it's not a case of 100% compliance all the time. Um, so what I'm suggesting is that there are theoretical reasons from institutionalist theory um, on both sides to think that there should be convergence, but also to think that there might not be convergence, right? Um, but this illustrates some cases of how I think this process is working. Um, so I want to show you some evidence that assesses four hypotheses. Um, so one hypothesis uh, that I develop from historical institutionalism, from liberal intergovernmentalism, um, from skeptical takes on globalization, is the hypothesis that we have no convergence anywhere among any welfare states. Right? Um, I actually think there are really good theoretical reasons to, to you know, defend the null here, um, and so I want to assess that hypothesis, right? Um, the second hypothesis is that there should be convergence among OECD countries, right? Um, this assesses the um, political globalization thesis. This assesses the economic uh, convergence driving welfare state convergence thesis, right? Um, the third hypothesis that I want to test is that we see convergence, but only in liberal market economies. Uh, and this is, this is driven specifically by uh, the varieties of capitalism approach um, that says if we see convergence anywhere, it should be not, um, 
not between liberal market economies and coordinated market economies, right? Actually, I should flip this, right? Coordinated market economies are up here, liberal market economies are down here. These shouldn't converge to each other, um, but we should see convergence within the set of liberal market economies given the kinds of political pressures that are exhibited in those, in those places. And fourth, uh, I want to test the hypothesis that uh, there is convergence, but only in Europe, um, given this argument about regional integration that I'm trying to make. So uh, the analysis has two parts. Um, in the first part, I'm just going to show trends in um, coefficients of variation um, for different groups of countries. Uh, given the hypotheses that I'm interested in testing, um, I'll begin by showing what the trends look like for different welfare state measures for the entire OECD, uh, the entire set of advanced capitalist countries. Um, then I'll show you the trends for the liberal market economies. Then I'll show you the trends for the European Union member states. And then I'll show you as a comparison set what the trends look like for um, nation states that are outside of the European Union, so the set of non-EU countries, right? Because for me, the EU versus non-EU comparison is key. The second part of the analysis is a group of panel regressions um, where the observations are dyad years um, of nation states. And so what I do here is um, arrange the data in a, in a different way, basically as a, uh, as, a, a dyadic, um, as a dyadic data set where each observation is a pair of countries for a given year, right? And what this setup allows me to do is to see if there's, if there's statistical evidence um, from regression analysis for uh, particular pairs of countries being more alike uh, in the welfare state domain than others, right? Um, and so I'll show, um, uh, you know, I'll assess evidence of convergence net of, uh, of overtime trends in differences among welfare states, uh, as well as clustering of standard errors. I'll also include uh, dyad fixed effects, and um, I'll include some measures that try to tap common demographic and economic pressures that might also help to account for any convergence that's observed. And I'll elaborate on this um, as I reach that stage. So the data come from three different sources. Uh, I use OECD historical statistics um, from 1960 to 2000. Uh, I have 23 countries in that, um, in, the, in those data. Uh, I also use uh, the decommodification data generated by uh, uh, Lyle Scruggs and his collaborators. Um, this has fewer countries, um, and it also is a shorter time period. Um, it goes from 1971 through 2002. Um, finally, I use the OECD's benefits and wages database, um, and data come from uh, uh, 23 countries, the same as in the OECD historical statistics, for a bit longer period of time. Uh, these data run through 2005. I measure the welfare state in three ways. Um, the first and probably broadest measure is the classical uh, transfers expenditure measure. Uh, the transfers expenditure measure has been used for quite some time, at least in the quantitative literature on the welfare state, uh, going back to the 80s and 90s, you know, classic work by, uh, by Alex Hicks, by Dwayne Swank. Um, and it, what it reflects, or what, what it is, um, is spending on social transfers as a percentage of GDP. So quite often this is thought of as uh, a welfare effort measure, right? Um, and it sums expenditures on sickness, pension, welfare, and family benefits. Um, and then, and then uh, norms that by GDP. Uh, 
slightly less general measure than that uh, is the decommodification index. What the decommodification index does is gives you a sense of how possible it is for people to make a living outside of the domain of the market. So, you know, how much of your how much of your income can you replace um, solely through uh, social insurance benefits, right? Uh, so, what the decommodification index does is to sum up information on coverage and generosity of benefits in several different domains, right? Sickness, pension, and unemployment insurance benefits. Um, the reason why I include uh, the decommodification index in addition to transfers is that um, many scholars in this literature have argued that uh, we should move away from expenditure-related measures to measures that are closer to the policy design of social insurance schemes, right? So then ratcheting down even further, the most specific um, measure that I have of welfare states is the unemployment insurance replacement rate. Um, this is an index um, published by the OECD. It's called the Summary Measure of Benefit Entitlement. Um, what it is is the, the average wage replacement rate for uh, several different uh, durations of unemployment, several different wage levels, and several different family situations, right? Because given the design of unemployment insurance benefits, um, it's very hard to compare them across national contexts, right? Because, you know, they vary according to, um, you know, how many children people have, um, what their family status is, uh, what their earnings level is, how long they've been unemployed. Uh, so what the OECD does is um, generate several different set, uh, uh, ideal types of unemployed people, and then they sum those into a total index of you know what, on average, uh, is your income replacement rate across these different situations, right? So that's the most specific measure I have. How do I measure convergence? Um, I, I should say that in... The framework of uh, macroeconomics, at least, I'm looking at sigma convergence and not beta convergence. Um, sigma convergence is actual change in dispersion over time. Um, it's it's uh, it's basically change in inequality, right? Is inequality growing or decreasing? Um, beta convergence taps something slightly different, which is mobility within a constant distribution, right? So I'm not interested in the question of mobility within this distribution. What I'm interested in is is dispersion decreasing or increasing or stable or what, right? Um, and so I use the coefficient of variation, um, which is the standard deviation over the mean, uh, to measure that. And I also show um, coefficients of variation that are weighted by population and unweighted by population. Um, the unweighted uh, analysis is the classical way to do it. Uh, in that analysis, all states are equally informative, right? So the, the UK receives as much weight as Germany receives as much weight as the Netherlands receives as much weight as any other European country, right? Um, or, or the US or whatever, depending on how the, the, how the data are grouped. Um, the weighted numbers reflect something slightly different. Uh, they address a different question. The question here is, is it the case that Europeans are living in increasingly similar welfare states? Or is it the case that members of the OECD, uh, citizens of the OECD, are living under an increasingly similar welfare regime? Same thing for liberal market economies, right? Um, and, and that's the point of doing the weighted analysis in addition to the unweighted analysis. So let's get to some results. Uh, this is the coefficient of variation in transfers for the, for the set of 23 OECD countries. Um, and as you can see on the, the panel on the left, uh, there is fairly clear evidence for unweighted 
convergence um, within the OECD based on the transfers measure, right? So the coefficient of variation goes from a little above 0.4 to a little below 0.25. Um, that's a real change, right? Um, the trend is very clear, and the trend is the same for, well, essentially the same for the unweighted, for the weighted measure, right? Um, dispersion is also declining for, uh, for the weighted coefficient of variation and transfers among the OECD, right? So in terms of the hypotheses that, that I've offered, this looks pretty good for the globalization story, right? So what about the LME story? Um, this shows the coefficient of variation and transfers for just the set of liberal market economies. Uh, what you see here is that um, there's basically trendless fluctuation, maybe a slightly uh, declining trend in the coefficient of variation, at least on the unweighted side. Um, but if you note the scale on the y-axis, I don't know if you guys can see this in the back, the numbers are pretty small. Um, the scale on the y-axis for the left panel is 0.3 to 0.15. So these changes are much smaller than the changes that I just showed you. Um, and these numbers are really bouncing around. Um, and the, you know, maybe if you plotted a regression through this, you'd get a slight negative slope for unweighted. Um, you'd probably get um, probably not a significant slope at all on the weighted side, right? Uh, unless you include a second order polynomial, but I don't have a theory of a U-turn on uh, welfare state convergence. Um, so, not so good for the LME story, at least for transfers. Um, what about the European Union? So for the European Union, for the EU15, you get very clear evidence of convergence in, um, in expenditures on transfers, right? Uh, the unweighted coefficient of variation goes down from about 0.42 um, to about 0.2, uh, which is a, a you know, substantively meaningful change. Um, the same thing is true for the weighted analysis. What strikes me about these figures is how similar they are to these figures. Right? I mean, this looks to me like the trend among the EU15 is driving the trend in the OECD, right? You know, I think that's, that's where the convergence is happening. It's happening in the EU15. Um, so then I start to wonder, well, what's happening outside the EU? Um, so let's look at the set of non-EU countries. Um, maybe some convergence in the later period after the 80s for uh, the unweighted measure um, and the weighted measure. But again, note the scale of the, of the y-axis. Um, these are much smaller changes. And you know, to my eyes, at least, these trends are much less clear. Um, so those are the results for the transfers measure for the trends in, coefficient of in, co in the coefficient of variation. Um, for decommodification, um, the results are quite a bit messier. Uh, Maybe some evidence of convergence um, after in you know, 1980 among the OECD um, in the unweighted analysis, but in the weighted analysis, essentially trendless fluctuation. And if you look again at the scale of the y-axis, um, these are very small changes. You know, most of the action is between a coefficient of variation of 0.23 and 0.2. Those are not dramatic differences, right? Um, that's for the unweighted side. On the weighted side, it's, most of it is between 0.18 and 0.16. Very, very small fluctuations um, on decommodification. Uh, for the liberal market economies, um, again, um, very small changes, no clear trends. 
Um, for the EU15, um, trendless fluctuation, no clear trend until about 1990. Um, and then you do start to see a decline in the coefficient of variation. Although, once again, um, given the scale on the y-axis, these are relatively small changes, right? So not dramatic convergence on decommodification, although some uh, in the later period. Um, but contrast that to the results for the non-EU uh, welfare states, right? For the non-EU welfare states, especially in the weighted analysis, the changes are still relatively small in an absolute sense, but the direction of the trend, um, especially in the later period, if you throw out that first observation, um, which is basically driven by sample composition. There are two observations that are unavailable on this measure for 1971. So throw out that first observation. You get, if anything, um, increasing dispersion right, outside the EU um, in the later period. So this is some, you know, if you compare this figure to this figure, um, for the later period, it does look like there's a difference between what's going on in the convergence of European Union welfare states and, if anything, the divergence of welfare states outside the EU. But what about the summary measure of benefit entitlement, right? This, um, this most closely uh, policy-related measure that is the percentage of um, your income that you can replace through accessing unemployment insurance. Uh, so this, this looks at the coefficient of variation in that measure um, for the entire OECD. And we have here, I think, very clear evidence for convergence among the OECD, right? Um, the coefficient of variation on the unweighted uh, uh, analysis goes from about 0.8 down to about 0.4. Um, that's a very big change um, in terms of the, the typical scales of what you see in coefficients of variation. The same thing is true for the weighted analysis, right? Um, so again, um, you know, go globalization, right? You look at the liberal market economies, um, some evidence, again, for this possible U-turn, um, declining uh, dispersion at first, followed by either flat or maybe slightly increasing divergence in the later period. So not strong evidence of convergence within the liberal market economies, at least not over the entire period. If you look at the EU, um, very clear evidence, both of unweighted and weighted convergence in the summary measure of benefit entitlement. And again, the striking thing to me about these results is the similarity between these graphs and these graphs. Right. So once again, I think the, the, the apparent convergence within the OECD is driven entirely by the convergence within the EU15, right? Um, you break it out and look at what's going on in the non-EU. Um, convergence at first, right? But then after the 80s, you know, maybe slight increase in dispersion, um, probably trendless fluctuation, right? Um, so those are the that's the evidence for the trends, okay? Um, so I want to turn to the panel analysis, the second part of the analysis. Uh, again, the unit of analysis is different. Um, here it's the dyad year. Um, so for instance, uh, you know, UK, Germany, 1971 would be one of the observations, right? Um, I have a maximum of 253 of these dyads, depending on data availability. I've got a max of 44 years, um, again, depending on data availability. The dependent variable is the absolute value of the difference in 
these three measures of the welfare state, right? So it's how different on each of these three measures are each you know, welfare state within each dyad, okay? So what's the absolute value of the difference between um, Germany's value on the summary measure of benefit entitlement, for instance, and the UK's value on the summary measure of benefit entitlement? Um, estimation is by OLS um, that it also includes in the models year fixed effects. Um, I have a, a dummy variable for each year, um, minus one, of course. Um, I did that because I didn't want to assume any particular functional form um, in the relationship given the different trends that I've observed um, you know, in, the, in the previous part of the analysis. Um, I also include uh, dyad fixed effects in some of the models. Um, I can only do that for the, um, uh, the EU variable because the, the, the variable that indicates whether both members of the dyad are in the EU is the only dummy variable I have that's time varying, right? So I can't include the dyad fixed effects in, um, you know, the other in the other models that look at common LME membership or look at common uh, member, you know, common um, uh, uh, place, right? Um, Finally, I estimate robust standard errors um, using the, the classical um, Huber-White measure, uh, reasoning that um, the errors are very likely to be correlated within, um, within dyads over time. So this is the evidence for absolute differences in transfers. Um, and looking across the models, so the first model, um, and these... These models, I should say, um, only include the year fixed effects, right? So there are no other covariates in these models. Um, so I'm looking at, uh, I have a dummy variable for a common um, EU membership that's time varying. That's model one. Model two is a constant um, uh, member, how would you put this in words? It would be, was the dyad a member of the European Union 15 at any point in time? So it's a non-time varying uh, indicator of common EU membership, right? And then I look at common um, uh, liberal market economy status, common coordinated market economy status. Um, I look at Scandinavian dyads separately, and then I look at um, continental Europe separately. Um, and the, the evidence suggests, if you look at Model 7, where I put all these things together, um, there is evidence that common EU membership reduces the differences between these dyads in terms of their welfare state spending, right? Um, it's a fairly large coefficient as well. The standardized coefficient, well, I can say that for all of these models that I'm going to show you, the standardized coefficients for the EU effect are in the range of 0.4, um, and these are Y standardized coefficients, right? 0.4 to 0.6. Um, so uh, EU dyads um, have have their uh, have the differences among their welfare states reduced by you know, about 0 0.4, 0.5 of a standard deviation. Okay. Um, and there's also evidence of LME convergence, right, in these data. Um, you can see the significant um, coefficient for the LME uh, there, too. And so that's the evidence for transfers, this very general measure of the welfare state. The evidence for decommodification is here. Um, it's very similar. The one difference is that you also see a significant coefficient for Scandinavia. Um, so, you know, increasing commonality uh, among Scandinavian uh, welfare states, right, over this period of time. Um, and the same is also true, again, for the EU and for um, liberal market economies, okay? And again, this is net of, uh, of year fixed effects. 
Um, these are the results for the summary measure of benefit entitlement. Um, and here the, I put the signs wrong in the slides. Um, <laughs> the EU coefficients are negative. Uh, they shouldn't be positive here on the slides. It's my mistake. Um, but they're not statistically significant, right? Um, so this is somewhat contradictory with the, the trend analysis. Um, and there, again, there's a significant coefficient for liberal market economies as well, okay, in the dyad year analysis. This table shows you results from models where I try to explain away this convergence where it appears. Um, so I try to explain away um, the, the, uh, the coefficients that indicate convergence by including um, common pressures from uh, uh, population aging, common pressures from economic um, decline and growth, common pressures from unemployment. Um, so the common pressures covariates are the, ab the absolute value of the difference in GDP, um, aging population, and unemployment, right? I don't show those regression results because most of them are actually non-significant. There's not a whole lot going on there. Um, but what the results do suggest is that at least for transfers and for um, decommodification, it's not these common economic and demographic pressures that are accounting for um, the EU effect, right? We still get a negative significant coefficient for the EU member dummy, um, as well as for the liberal market economy dummy, right? Um, so I think there, my, my argument is that there's something about um, regional integration per se that's driving uh, welfare state convergence. Um, the coefficients for uh, European Union in the transfers model as well as the decommodification model um, also hold up to dyad fixed effects. Um, that's uh, the second model here and the fourth model shown. Um, you can see that. Um, and then in the summary measure of benefit entitlement model, um, here I actually did get the sign of the coefficients right in the final model. <laughs> um, so the coefficient's negative, it's about the same size, um, but it doesn't reach significance. Um, it's, it's, the p-value, if I recall correctly, is between 0 0.10 and 0 0.20 for that, right? Um, but the EU effect holds up pretty well in the transfers models and in the decommodification models. So, what does all this add up to? Um, I think it adds up to a very clear case of welfare state convergence within the European Union. Um, wherever convergence appears in the trends for the OECD, uh, that convergence is really driven by what's going on in Europe. Um, there's very little evidence of convergence elsewhere, um, and there's evidence that EU members have more similar welfare states than other kinds of dyads, other kinds of pairs of welfare states. Um, EU members are specifically, you know, from you know around 0.4 of a standard deviation more similar than other welfare states, depending on the models. Um, those results are robust across two of the three welfare state measures. Um, they're also robust to a range of controls, um, and they're robust to dyad fixed effects. So that's my story, and with that, I will welcome your questions. Thank you. <laughs>